I'm your host, Tim. The Midnight Owl is a proud member of the Not After 30 podcast network. The Midnight Owl is your favorite broadcast, either from this dimension or a dimension that is just close enough to pick up the signal. This week, listener, our episode is about the mystery of appearing people. Nobody exists on purpose. Nobody belongs anywhere. We're all going to die. Come watch TV. Morty. What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is, don't think about it. Rick. The Man from Torrid. It was a hot day in July of 1954, years after the end of World War II. History has shown us that the world has a way of throwing itself into chaos and then rebounding itself back to as close as it can approximate to normality. So much has changed and would forever be irrevocably different. But the world was still here and time marches on. You know that old saying, business waits for no man. So what brings us to Japan at this moment in time? Well, that would be an unnamed man. This unnamed man was a European arriving at Hanada Airport. By all accounts, an unremarkable, average-looking man. He was Caucasian with a beard. This bearded man approached the border control counter pleasantly. Nothing extraordinary about that. This was an international airport located in Tokyo. This same scene must have played out dozens of times a day. Hundreds of times a week, year in and year out. The bearded man appeared to be well-traveled, a native French speaker who was fluent in Japanese. I don't imagine it to be a small feat to learn a foreign language in 1954. Think about how much larger the world was back then. Sure, in Europe, cultures with storied histories backed right up to one another, but... The Japanese were a part of the Axis forces. So, how did this bearded man know Japanese? Keep this in mind as we go throughout the rest of the story. But regardless, what I imagine happens next is the typical mundane exchange of all gatekeepers and people looking for passage to their next adventure. The immigration officer requests his paperwork. The bearded man hands over his passport. Contained within was stamps from various European countries as well as a few stamps from Japan. Again, this would be a mundane exchange between an immigration officer and a traveler at an international airport. The officer asks, Why are you here? Business? Have you been to Japan before? Yes, three times a year for the past five years. Country of origin? Torrid. 
At this response, the immigration officer looked up from the passport. Torred? The officer repeats, slowing his speech to make sure the bearded man fully understands what he heard. This is probably just confusion because of the language barrier. Wrinkles form across the man's brow as his eyebrows knit. Yes, Torred. The officer waves a calming hand. Please, sir, remain here. He turns to the officer at the next counter, waving to get his attention, and whispers are exchanged. Heads shake. A security person is then called over. Please, sir, if you could follow this gentleman, we have a few more questions. The traveler's indignation rises. I think we can all agree patience is in short supply after hours of traveling, especially in those days. As a decades-long smoker, I can't imagine what it would be like hurtling through the air in a metal coffin filled with cigarette smoke. I know that stale air, terrible peanuts, and changing time zones wouldn't leave me in a great mood. The man, exasperated, pointing at his passport, why? What's the difference about today than any other time I've been here? A firm hand wraps around the man's arm as he's pointed towards a quiet room where they can ask a few more questions. A new room, a new officer, the same confusion. The new officer asks, Well, since you're a regular traveler, of course you've made accommodations in advance. What hotel is your reservation with? The hotel the bearded man claims to have a reservation with does in fact exist. But when contacted, they have no record of the traveler, even though he claimed to be a regular guest. The officer presses the issue. Fine, you know what, if you're on business, then give us the number of the company you're going to be doing business with. The phone number is freely given. I imagine with a smug expression crossing the bearded man's face. He had done face-to-face -face business with this company over the past five years. Hotels lose information all the time, and surely however competent the officers are, they can't have memorized every country on the planet. This whole annoying mess was about to resolve itself. The phone number works and it's for the company he claims it to be. But the company has never heard of him. A records check of the company that he claims to be working for turns up nothing. The man had currency from various European nations, again proving his frequent flyer status, but the bank his checkbook was issued from didn't exist. The bearded man now looks like an obvious liar. Why will he not admit he's been caught? What is his actual business in Japan? Is he a criminal on the run? A trafficker trying to smuggle things into and out of Japan? What if this innocuous looking man was really a spy that just got caught up in a clerical error? A world map was pulled out and he was told to point to the country that he says he originated from. Becoming more agitated, he points, right between France and Spain, to a small island nation. 
a nation that had been in existence for a thousand years. The bearded man looks to where he pointed on the map, and the area reads, The Principality of Andorra. Back and forth, the traveler and the officers argued. What would be going through the bearded man's mind right now? Not only will the officers not believe him, the map is obviously wrong or doctored, but by who and to what end? The man begins to demand to speak with higher-ranking officials. This would not stand. Obviously, some practical joke had gone too far. The officers were bored and wanted to laugh, and this had all gone too far. He had business to conduct. The man's passport, driver's license, and wallet were confiscated. These documents were locked away safely with security while they got to the bottom of this mysterious character. The man was set up in a high-rise hotel. Just in case they were wrong, it's best not to irritate a foreign businessman too much. The bearded man was allowed to keep his luggage. Guards were set outside his door, he ate his dinner, and remained in his room quietly brooding. The following morning, when it was time for another round of questioning, immigration officials entered the hotel room to gather the bearded man up. The room was more than a dozen stories high. There was no ledge outside the window. But the room, however, slept in was empty and otherwise undisturbed. The luggage was also gone. Even in the unlikely event the man could get out the window and shimmy down the building undetected, how did he do that with his luggage in tow? When the officials go to check the man from Torrid's documentation one more time for a clue to who this trafficker, scammer, or spy could be, it was gone. Under lock and key in an international airport, the man and his possessions vanished. If this man was some kind of shimsham artist, then how did he get not only his hands on a valid-looking passport, how did he get them stamped? How did he get the name and phone number of the company and hotel? I can't imagine phone books must have really traveled that far back in the day. What I can't understand is that if he was going to bother to lie, gather that information, have the documents faked and those details in place, then why not make the next smaller step and call ahead in that assumed identity? There are details that have been lost to time since no official report was ever filed. We can only guess at the conversation and facts. Where did he board the plane? Did he just wake up on an inbound flight? Did the other travelers notice a new passenger? It has been said that every choice every thinking being makes in our world creates an infinite number of ripples. These ripples create parallel new worlds. Think about it like this. Flipping a coin up in the air. There's so much you can do to control the flips to get similar results. Which side is facing up when you flip it? Having a room with fixed conditions for airflow. At least gravity is a constant, so you don't have to worry about that. But probability or chance is always there. 
Each flip, a different outcome. Each outcome, a new world. Follow that all the way back to the Big Bang that created our universe in the first place. Like binary code for computers, it's all just ones and zeros. The very first choice would have been the Big Bang. Did the Big Bang happen and everything come into existence, spiraling out into a chaotic mess of probability? Or was that first domino never pushed and the universe ceases to come into creation? Intelligent design or random chance, ones and zeros. Thank God math is the same across the board. Like gravity in our coin flip experiment with math, we know how all things scientifically will interact with each other. Physics, chemistry, biology. What we can never account for is free will. Every choice creating a new world, each of those worlds creating ones of their own. There is infinite possibility. I wonder if in any of those universes I was able to make this meandering thought coherent, accurate, or compelling. Our world and those parallel worlds that are similar to ours are much closer to being in sync. Is it possible that the man from Torrid accidentally slipped into ours? Maybe. As the airplanes intersected one dimension a hair breaths away from the other, did the bearded man from Torrid slip into ours and the man from our world slip into theirs? The first law of thermodynamics, also known as the law of conservation of energy, states that Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Energy can only be transferred or changed from one form to another. When the universe discovered this mismatch between the Endoran of our world and the Torrid from theirs, did the universe, just like after a world war, seek to normalize itself, each person snapping back to the place they were meant to be? I wonder where our traveler ended up. I could definitely understand if he decided to keep the story of his dimension hopping to himself. Was his story more or less the same as the man from Torrid, except now on the Torrid world's internet, they tell the story of the man from Andorra. You would have to wonder, did the man from Andorra ever tell anyone when he got back? Maybe his grandchild is clicking around seeing the story that his grandfather whispered around campfires years ago with a smile on his face. Another fun thought is that if he shifted from one world to another, what if everyone else on that plane did as well? Maybe he flew in from Spain. In both our worlds, Spain exists. So even if every other person on that plane shifted... They wouldn't have noticed because their documentation would be recognizable. If not for one detail about the name of a small island nation, they wouldn't have noticed any discernible difference from our world and their world. And if that's true, can you rule out that you haven't ever slipped from one world to another? Maybe the world you're in right now wasn't the one that you were born into. But it's so close, you can't even tell. Have you ever had a detail, historical or pop culture, that 
that you just knew was true, and it turned out to be false, at least on the earth you're currently inhabiting. The Green Children of Woolpit This story comes from around the year 1200. It was harvest for the villagers of Woolpit. Taking a break from the day's reaping, they decided to check the wolf pits for which the village got its name. The wolf pits were used to capture game, a deep pit that wild game like deer or elk would fall into. With steep rock walls, the animals would fall in and couldn't escape making killing them, however gruesome, easy. To the villagers' surprise, there wasn't a predator and there wasn't a deer at the bottom of the pit this day. At the bottom of the pit were two children. Two green children. They were crying, scared, and speaking in a language no one could discern. In a time of superstition and terrible disease, the villagers were given a chance to show humanity to these children. They did not hesitate. They reached in and pulled the kids out of danger. Everything about these kids was different. Even their clothes were unfamiliar. The children were taken to the home of Sir Richard Decane, a local landowner. For days the children refused food openly sobbing when they saw certain foods be placed in front of them. The children starved until they were presented with raw, broad beans. Over time, they adjusted to regular food and lost their green color. These two children were a little boy and a little girl. Shortly after the children's baptism, the younger boy became melancholic and died. Over time, the girl learned to speak English. Now that she could communicate, she would go on to explain that they came from a land where the sun never shone, and the light was a lot like twilight. She believed they lived underground. The little girl referred to her home as St. Martin's Land. She claimed that everything and everyone there was green. They had been herding their father's cattle when they heard a loud noise. Her and her brother followed the noise these bells. They were entranced by this wondrous new sound. As they followed the ringing of what would later be suspected to be the bells of Bury St. Edmund, they had gotten lost in an unfamiliar cave. Suddenly, the children found themselves in the wolf pit they were found in. In her story, she described a land across a great river that was luminous. The girl would go on to marry a local man, and little else is known of her. People have gone to Woolpit in hopes of finding her descendants. With no such luck. Green-skinned children appearing out of nowhere. Many theories exist to explain what could have happened. Maybe they were aliens or fey folk that wandered into our world and could not find their way home. Maybe it was just a tall tale that got out of control in the retelling. A popular but less fun explanation were that they were a part of the Flemish refugees being persecuted by the crown at this time. That's why their clothes and accent were unfamiliar. 
Their green skin was just a symptom of what was called, at the time, green sickness. Green sickness is from extreme malnourishment. This is supported by the fact that their skin reverted to its regular color as their diet was fixed by the nobleman's generosity. But that doesn't quite explain the little girl's story of St. Martin. Unless she was smart enough to know it's better to be an interdimensional traveler that stumbled from one world to the next than a refugee in troubled times. Smart girl. Rudolph Fence. In July of 1950, a man suddenly appeared in the center of New York City's Times Square. His neck was craned up looking at the signs and buildings as if he had never seen anything quite like this before. He was wearing old-fashioned clothes that would have been out of date decades ago. Confused and scared, he bolted in a seemingly random direction and was almost immediately struck down by a taxi. The NYPD examined the man at the morgue. They found 19th century money in his pockets as well as a business card identifying him as Rudolph Fence. The money and coinage had not been produced in several decades, but most of it was in mint condition. The tags on his out-of-date clothes had the name and address of a tailor who no one had ever heard of, and his hat bore a tag from a store that had gone out of business many years earlier. He had a receipt from a livery stable and a brass slug from a saloon. There was also a letter postmarked in 1876 with the name Rudolph Fence, with an address on Fifth Avenue. Further investigation turned up no listing for a Rudolph fence in New York City phone directories. The Fifth Avenue address listed in the dead man's card had been turned into a business rather than a residence many years ago. The deceased man's fingerprints matched none on file, and no current missing persons report or inquiry fit the details of the body in the morgue. The investigating officer finally turned up a listing in an old phone directory for a Rudolph Fence Jr., a man in his 60s who passed away five years earlier. Rudolph Fence Jr.'s widow had since moved to Florida. By mail, she supplied the information that her husband's father, Rudolph Fence, had disappeared sometime in the 1870s. He went out for a walk around 10 p.m., and never returned. A search of the missing persons file for 1876 turned up a report for a Rudolph Fence whose clothing and address corresponded to those of the man killed in Times Square in 1950. For decades this tale was popular among members of Europe's paranormal research community and it was generally accepted as true until 2005. Researcher Chris Abeck investigated this urban legend. Chris Abeck discovered that the tale had begun life as a science fiction story, which was penned by Jack Finney and published in 1951. Two years later, a writer, Ralph Holland, reprinted the story in a booklet but he did so without permission and removed all indication that the story was fiction. 
Holland was a member of a group called Borderland that was committed to promoting belief in the existence of a fourth dimension. The fence story, when presented as fact, served this agenda. Through Holland's booklet, the tale of accidental time travel made its way to Europe, where it soon took root and circulated for decades within the European paranormal research community. So this story might not be real. Unless it's a part of a massive cover-up perpetuated by the men in black to keep us from asking too many questions. Like, when is Shazam with Sinbad coming to Netflix? Gaddy Anton Canyon. May of 1972. Four girls were driving back to Utah after spending their weekend at a rodeo in Pioche. The group was traveling down the highway on a dark and moonless night. While crossing the desolate Utah-Nevada state line at around 10 p.m., they came up to a fork in the highway. They veered to the left and began driving through Gideonton Canyon. Suddenly, the black pavement turned to white cement. They were confused and believed they had taken a wrong turn. The girls headed back the way they had come. As they exited the canyon, they were driving past grain fields and ponderosa pines with no desert in sight. They spotted a building that looked like a restaurant or roadhouse with a large neon sign out front. The girls pulled up but couldn't understand what the sign read because it was written in some kind of illegible random squiggles. They decided to stop and take a chance by asking for direction. As they pulled up and tried to sum up the courage to find out where they were and how to get home, one of the girls began to scream hysterically. Very tall humanoids burst from the restaurant, pointing and screaming at the girls in their old Chevy Nova. Looking back at this event, the girls thought that the patrons looked more shocked and frightened than angry. A few of those patrons, four tall beings, ran to their vehicles. These vehicles were egg-shaped, mounted on tricycle wheels with bright lights shining from the top. The girls gunned it and hit the highway trying to get the hell out of there. The egg vehicles began speeding after them. The petrified girls sped back through the canyon as white cement changed back to its normal black asphalt leading them into their familiar desert. The egg vehicles were nowhere to be seen, but they weren't taking any chances, and they continued to speed, trying to put as much distance between them and whatever the hell that was. It was dark, and they should have been keeping their eyes on the road ahead of them. But with four human-like creatures chasing you through the desert in egg cars, I can understand their distraction. With this breaking concentration... They wrecked in a creek, leaving them with three flat tires. They waited until morning to hike to Highway 56, where they flagged down an obviously skeptical state trooper. The tire tracks they left are difficult to explain. The only tire tracks left by the girl's Chevy ended abruptly only 200 meters into the desert, which leaves the mystery of how the girls ended up over three kilometers north of the highway no physical evidence of their travels. 
The car was also missing a hubcap, which was never located. Maybe it got lost somewhere in their mad dash through the Utah desert. Or maybe it's being displayed at a museum on the parallel earth. Or as a trophy above the local bar that skeptics come from kilometers around to dismiss. The details of the report to the highway patrol have been confused over the years. Most versions of the incident list the trooper at the scene as Trooper Victoria Vic Lindquist. I am told the details of the accident investigation make for very interesting reading. The Philippine Soldier, October 26, 1593. Guards at Mexico City Plaza Mayor apprehended a dazed man wandering around. This man had a uniform of a Philippine soldier on. The guards went into high alert, bewildered how this confused man could have slipped past the high security of the mayor's home. The Philippine soldier was questioned on what his motives were and how he got there. The stranger stammered out a fantastical story. He said his name was Gil Perez. Gil Perez was a Spanish soldier and guard at the Governor General in Manila, Philippines. October 23, 1593, he had been at his post on high alert following the disturbing assassination of Governor Don Gomez Perez de Menes by pirates. From hours and hours of being on duty, Perez was exhausted. Perez allegedly leaned on a wall and closed his eyes for a moment. When he opened them again, he was in an unfamiliar place, surrounded by new sights and smells. Disoriented, Perez nevertheless had gone back to his guard detail. Everything was unfamiliar. His post wasn't where it should be. His sleep-addled mind took a minute to realize that his uniform was not the same as the guards that were around him, which was when he was apprehended. Skeptical, the Mexican guards did not believe a word of this tale and Perez was thrown into prison and accused of being a servant of the devil. Perez languished in prison for months, until a ship arrived from the Philippines along with news of the Manila governor's assassination. Until that point, the assassination had been unknown in Mexico. Further corroborating Perez's story, was the testimony of someone on the ship who claimed to know Perez and to have actually seen him on duty on October 23rd, although it was not known that he had gone to Mexico. Considering that he had been detained since October 26th and that he could not have possibly known of the assassination because the news had taken months to travel across the ocean by ship, as well as claims of those who apparently knew him, the Mexican authorities had no real choice but to believe Perez. In light of this information, the Mexican authorities then reportedly released him and allowed him to go home, this time the long way, by ship. Theories range about this story. Maybe he was simply a lying imposter or a deserter. Maybe something a little more incredible, like... Spontaneous Teleportation 
Could he have fallen through an interdimensional portal? Or maybe he had been dropped back off by aliens after an abduction. Vegas In July 2008, a woman named Lorena Garcia woke up in her bed on what seemed like an ordinary day. She went about her normal routine, but she couldn't help but find small details that seemed out of place or somehow wrong. For example, her sheets weren't the sheets she had normally on the bed. Her pajamas were different from what she remembered wearing the night before. Miss Garcia decided to brush this off on the drive to work. When you're in the grind of going to work and coming home and going to work and coming home, details can become fuzzy in the mundane routine of all of our lives. She had been employed for 20 years at the same business. However, when she arrived at her department, she realized it wasn't actually her department. It was in its usual location, on its usual floor, but she didn't belong there. Lorena investigated and found out that she was indeed employed by this company, like she had always been, but in a different department. Overcome with the strangeness of what was going on, she returned home, only to find the man she had separated six months before in her home. The man acted like the separation had never taken place. Her new lover, who she claimed she had been seeing for about four months, was nowhere to be found. Even after hiring a private detective, his whereabouts remained unknown. There was no trace of him at his alleged residence, nor any trace of his family. Miss Garcia believes she has shifted from one dimension or reality to another. Unfortunately for the alleged dimensional traveler, Garcia has not been able to return to her normal universe, leaving her stuck in a dimension where she doesn't belong. I wonder if the counterpart Lorena from our world that shifted to take her place minds. A better job... A new and possibly better boyfriend? Do you think she ever said anything or just kind of went with the flow? The story of appearing people isn't new. Throughout our history, mysterious people have wandered into our world and wandered back out. Sometimes as magical creatures, other times mysterious figures out of time with the rest of the world. Why, why, why would this be happening? Maybe the universe has a way of healing itself by introducing an outside force, even if we can't understand why or where from, but it could introduce a new way of thinking. It's fun to create scenarios in your head of all the various possibilities. Are aliens just more advanced parallel worlds to ours? Is it possible when these aliens crossed over, they brought with them maths and sciences? You know, the ones that gave the Egyptians the pyramids and our scientific understanding of the universe. Or did they whisper to shamans on drug trips the ingredients to medicine? Is it possible the stoned ape theory or ayahuasca trips simply align your brain to a frequency closer to another dimension? 
Could it be when an artist talks about a muse, like a writer or artist, it's just listening to a thousand versions of various stories being created from people in other worlds? They see a thousand painters trying a thousand different brush strokes and better understand their own expression. Is it possible that when Shakespeare called it a muse, in reality it was a bored person hacking away on a keyboard, performing menial data entry, thinking about a story about lovelorn teens? I don't care what dimension you're in. Decent story structure translates all barriers. There is a theory that an infinite number of monkeys on an infinite number of typewriters slamming keys at random will eventually create the complete works of Shakespeare. So, in infinity, how many realities have cubicle farms with people daydreaming of being or doing anything other than what they're being paid to do? In Irish folklore, they tell legends of the changelings. Children that become sick or had mental issues were often accused of being a fairy or fae folk. In the minds of those that believed the fae had in the minds of those that believed, the fae had come in and stolen away a strong child and replaced it with one of the fae's own sick children. A mother knows her children. She carried that child for nine months, fed and raised that baby. Her love sustained it. Her intuition would reveal any imposter, no matter how much they look like their baby. It would be easy to judge this as harsh or terrible. In my eyes, it's completely human. Awful and sad, but human. We can imagine what life would have been like, but never really have a true understanding of really what it would have been like to live back then. The infant mortality rate disease and famine? If you have five kids and one sick one, that sick one will take food out of the mouth of those that could survive. And no mother could ever just give up on their child. But if it wasn't their child, if their baby had been stolen away, then maybe that opens you up to make a terrible choice. The Fae is a broad range of creatures from the other world. It was suggested that trolls valued the upbringing that a human home could bring. Some legends suggest that fairies may even need human milk to survive. To get your child back from the Fae, you had to expose the fairy for what it was by throwing it into the fire and chanting a ritual. I've heard stories of men having their wives burned alive, believing they had been stolen away and replaced by a changeling. Could these people have just been dimensional travelers? However close they were to the true form, their innate wrongness makes them stand out to those that love them. Those that know their soul, no matter how much they look like the individual they should be. I think what I'm saying... Should you accidentally slip into a world near ours? Be careful. Go with the flow. Ask questions. Since people travel back and forth with their clothes and personal possessions, I would also suggest that you carry proof of that world's subtle difference in case you ever bounce back. If that world's Midnight Owl has some completed episodes, I don't. 
Would you mind putting them on an iPod and just send them over when you get back? I don't think it counts as plagiarism if I steal from myself, just from a, another world. Thank you, listener, for tuning in to this week's episode of The Midnight Owl. Don't forget to rate and review on whatever podcatcher your dimension uses. Thank you. And don't forget to owl at the moon. Hoot hoot. <laughs>